0: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see.
2: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 5th, 2023. On this week's show, Jack Hamilton will be here to talk about how the Miami Heat, improbably, or maybe at this point probably, tied up the NBA Finals against the Denver Nuggets. Tariq Panja of the New York Times will also join us for a conversation about Saudi Arabia's efforts to lure Lionel Messi and conquer global soccer. And finally, the athletic Zach Buchanan will come on to discuss his story on the final days, possibly... Of the legendary pioneering mascot, the San Diego chicken. I'm in Washington, DC, and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in DC is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan.
1: Hey Josh. Episode one
2: of Slow Burn was awesome. Everybody should listen if they have not yet. The second episode coming this Wednesday, Slow Burn becoming Justice Thomas, hosted by our own Joel Anderson. Joel is busily working on the rest. Don't you worry. You got this, Joel. In our Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk about a tweet. It's an it's a really amazing tweet from Shams Charania suggesting some Kyrie Irving and LeBron James related hijinks. We'll get to it uh, in a bit, but only. If you have Slate Plus, you get bonus segments on this and other shows, including Slow Burn. You get ad-free shows. You get unlimited reading on the Slate site, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash hangupplus. Slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday night in Denver, the Nuggets were leading 83-75 at the end of the third quarter, 12 minutes away from taking a 2-0 lead in the NBA Finals. Then this sequence happened in a span of 2 minutes, 43 seconds. A three from Duncan Robinson, a layup by Duncan Robinson, another three from Duncan Robinson, three by Gabe Vincent, layup by Duncan Robinson, two free throws by Gabe Vincent. The score at that point was 90 to 85. The Heat would go on to win by three with Denver's Jamal Murray missing a tying three-pointer at the buzzer. So no 2-0 lead for the Nuggets, no more home court advantage for the Nuggets, and no more underestimating the Heat ever again again. Except I still think Denver is going to win the series. Joining us now is Slate's pop critic, Jack Hamilton, whose beloved Celtics got heated in the Eastern (laughs) Conference Finals. Hello, Jack. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, When we were talking uh, a little bit before the game on Sunday, you told me, I hope Denver destroys Miami tonight. That would be the (laughs) most fun to talk about. So I'm sorry you won't be having fun today. What do you think happened in game two?
0: Yeah, I mean, what happened? It's it's sort of the Heat's blueprint for winning throughout these playoffs. Uh, they hit almost fifty percent of their three pointers. Um, they shot seven more three pointers than Denver did. Denver didn't shoot badly from three; they were a little under forty percent, but the Heat were just very hot. Um, you know, <laughs> and then also they were you know opportunistically uh, took advantage of the Nuggets not really playing that well. You know, the Nuggets I think had came out kind of flat. Um, It was a close game. As you mentioned, you know, there was Jamal Murray got a semi decent look at what would have been a game tying three, uh, at the buzzer. But yeah, I mean, the heat just came out. They played hard, you know, played smart. Um, but really the big story is, is the three point shooting. Um, I mean, if they continue to shoot at that. You know, level of uh, proficiency, like they're going to be really hard to beat. It's hard, you know, if a team is shooting almost 50 percent from threes and and getting a lot of threes up, I mean, that's just like it's hard. It's hard to beat that. Um, So that was really and then then there were also, you know, some people would probably say that there were some um, calls or sometimes non calls. Uh, there was a ve- what seemed to me to be a very, very obvious goaltending um, violation against Bam Adebayo uh, in the fourth quarter that wasn't called. You know, this is in a three-point game, um, everything like that. Matters, but yeah, I mean, it, ultimately, I think it comes down to it comes down to the three point shooting and taking advantage of the fact that, um, yeah, that Denver didn't really have its a game for most of the night. The three point shooting was not new. The Heat shot
1: forty five percent from three to beat the Bucks, who were seeded number one. They shot forty three percent to beat the Celtics, who were seeded number two. Um, all of these undrafted players: Gabe Vincent, Robinson, Max Struess, Caleb Martin. 11 for 21 from three on Sunday. Um, This is a pattern. And if patterns like this continue to hold, this will be a longer series than anyone expected, Josh.
2: Yeah, Ben Rohrbach of Yahoo Sports did a good story kind of cataloging the Heat's three-point success. My favorite, to kind of put this into context, was this. Steph, Katie, and Clay Made 151 of 364 threes for 41.5% for the Warriors when the Warriors had their best team ever in 2017. Uh, Vincent, Martin, and Robinson (laughs) are 135 of 314 in these playoffs and on pace to surpass Steph, KD, and Clay. And it's not about them being, oh, these guys have always been great and they're undrafted, so they just don't get the publicity. Um, They're All these other stats that we can read, I won't bore you uh, by going on at great length, but those three guys were not good three-point shooters by percentage during the regular season. They combined to shoot 34% on 13 three-point attempts per game, Jack. Um, And so I I think part of this has to be that the Heat are playing better collectively in the playoffs, they're getting more minutes from Jimmy Butler, more minutes from Bam. Those guys are opening up probably better looks for these shooters than they were getting mm-hmm. in the regular season. Um, But I think some of it has to be shooting luck. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the question, and Stefan kind of raised it here. Is it luck if they shoot 45% against the Bucks, 43% against the Celtics, Um, and now they're continuing to just shoot lights out against the Nuggets? At what point... Is this just the luckiest streak in the history of the NBA? I mean, it's possible there has to be, somebody has to have the luckiest streak in the mm-hmm. history of the NBA. Or is there some new level of ability that they're unlocking in the postseason either due to more player availability or better scheming or something else?
0: yeah I mean, you know at a certain point, it kind of doesn't matter, you know, like where it's like, is this luck or is this you know skill, or you know I mean, as someone who is rooting for the Celtics in the last series, and I'm sure a Buck's fans feel the same way in that first round series, something that me and my you know celtics uh Uh, fan friends were, you know, this common refrain was like, this isn't sustainable. They're going to regress to the mean. Like, you know, this is going to, they can't keep shooting this well. And I think people are still saying that, you know, that it's like shooting, you know, winning a game, winning games by shooting 50% from three is not really a sustainable model. But the fact is that like the heat don't need it to be sustainable for that much longer. They just need it to happen three more times and then they'll probably win the NBA championship. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's something that I don't really recall. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Um, an instance quite like this in the NBA. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, baseball where there's this sort of old adage in baseball about, you know, this sort of hot, the team that gets hot for the playoffs, Um, you know, baseball has this 162 game season and the playoffs are much shorter. Um, And so if you, you know, if you've got this team that gets, you know, you get hot hitting or hot pitching, you can win a world series in ways that might've seemed uh, improbable for a team in the regular season. You just need, you know, a few weeks or a month or so of, overperforming you know your your expectations you don't see that as much in the nba partly because the playoffs are so long um and it's really hard to kind of keep that going for you know two months which is what they what they basically end up being and i guess yeah i mean you know the heat did win that series against the knicks where i don't think they shot quite as um torridly as they did against the bucks and the celtics but that was
2: the one series where they could probably afford not to exactly exactly
0: but it's like you know to beat a team like denver who are really really good and, you know, I should, again, emphasize that, like, this was a, a game that the Heat did, you know, came, come pretty close to at least uh, going into overtime with. Uh, but yeah, you know, to beat this team, well, there's absolutely no question that, that Denver is a more talented team than Miami. You're going to need to, you know, play above your, you know, punch above your weight or whatever the cliche is. And especially, you know, from three, which is very valuable if you're shooting 50% <laughs> from three. <laughs> if there was an NBA player who was a 50% uh Three point shooter, they would uh, probably be getting a uh, you know three hundred million dollar contract. <laughs>
1: are we giving the Heat too much credit for these threes? NBA players are very good at hitting open threes. Typically, uh, Nuggets coach Michael Malone was didn't seem so praiseworthy of the Heat's shooting prowess as he was critical of the Nuggets' defensive lapses. I mean, he was like really angry after the game we were far far we were by far our least disciplined game of these 16 or 17 playoff games so many breakdowns they exploited every one of our breakdowns and scored you know so we're talking about that end of the ball and you know maybe Denver was not particularly efficient defensively at the other end of the court we have to talk about Miami's defensive adjustments from game one where they got blown out the final score was like 10 points or nine points but it was a 20 point game going into the fourth quarter and they got hot and it was a route for the whole game in this game nikola jokic scored 41 points but he only had four assists he was not distributing the ball well we talked on this podcast last week with joel anderson josh about whether miami's defense could shut down the nuggets and the 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 discussion was sort of well You know, the Nuggets have Jokic, who can pass at will anywhere on the court. He wasn't able to do that on Sunday night.
2: No, and, you know, Eric Spolstra, the Heat coach, sort of hit back a little bit at the very simplistic kind of take that's like you either let Jokic score or you let him distribute. And, oh, so the Heat choose to let him score, so they won the game. Like, obviously, it's a lot more... Yeah. complicated than that. And Jokic, um, due to his <laughs> greatness, can, in some ways, choose to do what he wants. Like, it's not entirely up to the Heat or anybody else what kind of approach that Jokic or the Nuggets um, will take in a given game. But, you know, it it is increasingly hard to argue with what seems to be the prevailing view that Eric Spolster is the best coach mm-hmm. in the NBA after Game one, where the Heat just looked entirely incapable of, from a personnel perspective, guarding the Nuggets. I mean, you had the specter of Aaron Gordon, who's the fourth option for the Nuggets, just absolutely abusing smaller players. I think 12 first quarter points, just backing dudes down and scoring at will. I don't recall him doing that maybe once, but like, not really, that was not a factor at all in game 2. And then, you know, Jack, when you think of the heat zone and um how successful it's been at stopping teams, it was not successful at stopping um the Nuggets uh in, you know, the regular season and the idea is like, well, if you have Al Horford in the middle of the zone, he's not really a distributor. If you have Jokic, who's the best passing big man in the history of the game, you know, that's not going to be something that the Heat are going to be able to deal with. In game 2, the Heat seemed actually able to deal with that pretty well and they put kevin love back in the rotation um and you know that seemed to work decently uh, to get another big man out there so uh, just the adjustments from game one to game two seem to work and the heat just have a lot of limits in terms of what they can do and you know they don't have anybody coming off the bench who is both like large and good at defense um and yet Jack, you know, they they seem to be able to figure out, at least in this one game, a, a way to make the Nuggets offense look, you know, pretty pedestrian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult thing that they that they did. You know, I think it's <laughs> kind of flies under the radar that like, you know, to take away, take someone out of the game as a passer uh, is really difficult to do. And they they more or less were able to do that with Jokic in this game. I mean, um, he did score 41 points, but I saw a stat. Uh, earlier today, that the, the Nuggets are 0 and 3 in the playoffs in games where Jokic scores more than 40 points. So there actually kind of does seem to be something to this. Like, if you turn him into a scorer, which he's obviously incredibly capable of doing. I mean, there was a stretch in the third quarter where he just took over the game. Um, it, and I really thought I was like, okay, this is going to be where, uh, the Nuggets just, you know, run, basically run Miami off the court. Cody Zeller was guarding Jokic and it was just comical, like how, how little answer. <laughs> (laughs) there was for he was making everything and just you know it was like and
2: and also the point the point being like when Jokic was scoring all of those points it wasn't like anybody watching the game was like oh great strategy by Miami not letting him pass the ball (laughs) as they're like running up a lead like it's it's obviously like not a great strategy to just let Jokic rampage that way
0: Yeah, no, it was like watching a dad play against his kids in the driveway or something. You know, it was just like <laughs> how it was about incredible. that play where he uh,
2: <laughs> ran the fast break, dribbling left-handed with the ball, like going <laughs> up to about his eight shoulder. Feet. <laughs> yeah that was great.
0: <laughs> My favorite was there was one where 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 Zeller I actually thought he might get called for a flagrant foul where Jokic had made some, you know, crazy shot and Zeller just fouled him so obviously. You know, it was this quintessential like just frustration like I can't deal with this like what's going on here. Um yeah, but I mean it's certainly true that um, he, I think he only had four assists. Yeah. You mentioned Aaron Gordon, Aaron Gordon only had 12 points. I mean, a huge, a, a big factor in this series and something that I'm, you know, if I were a Nuggets fan, I'd be, I'd be slightly worried about is Michael Porter jr. Um, who's a great player and a great shooter, but has been really cold, uh, in,
2: in both games, one and game two. I was um, going to say actually that, um, the stuff that Stefan was reading, um, where Malone was really mad. I actually read that as a, subtweet of michael porter jr like Mm -hmm. i think he was often the guy leaving people wide open i also had just read before the game the zach lowe piece yeah um before game two where he noted porter's back issues have made it hard for him to become a pick and roll ball handler or to back down similar defenders he has trouble getting low enough to gain leverage getting into a crouched defensive stance is tough for porter too and i was like wow this guy is very relatable Like, this (laughs) this guy is, like, my favorite NBA player now. But it just seemed like... There was this moment in Game 1 where he... Because he's so big. um, Mm. Where he was just, like, rejecting heat guys at the rim. Where they're just like, wow, this guy... It seemed like they weren't really able to account for him and his size. He's never been considered a good defender, even a really a passable one. And in game two, I think that kind of reverted to form. And you notice he wasn't on the court. I mean, this is a guy who can shoot over anyone and is just an amazing offensive player. Was not was not on the floor at the end of game two, which, you know, Stefan led me to believe that Malone was kind of singling him out. I thought he was like very bad defensively and needs to kind of get his shit together for the Nuggets to be able to be their best selves.
1: And as happens in games like these, Jack, I mean, little sequences of screw-ups are catastrophic. And there was that stretch in the fourth quarter where Cantavius Caldwell-Pope committed two fouls on three-point mm-hmm. shots, um, uh, the Heat went to the line three straight times on shooting fouls after Denver had cut the lead to like 92 to 89 and got back into this game. So games like these do turn on little things. You know, we talk a lot about the big things and the adjustments that, that, that a great coach like Spolstra can make, but ultimately, you know, a missed goaltend, some bad fouls, some small lapses on one or two defensive stands and you're going to lose.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean the 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 fouling on three-pointers is just really. I mean there a lot was made after game 1 that the, the Heat had only shot two free throws um in in game 1 of this series which was an NBA playoff record, not just finals. You know, obviously they shot a lot more um in this game and some of them were, you know, just like, you know, the types of fouls you get by playing smart offense, you know, attacking the basket things like that. But stuff like getting fouled on a three-pointer, I mean, that's just really, really, in a, in a finals, like, you can't be doing that if you're Denver. Especially Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who's a great defender. Um, like, it's just such a, a kind of unforgivable mistake to... And they, they were obvious fouls. They were not, like, blown right. whistles on those threes. And that's what Michael
1: Malone might have been referring to, too, Josh. I mean, those are considered boneheaded defensive plays.
2: Yeah, the other thing that I found... Um, really interesting that i hadn't known and kevin pelton had this again before game 2 is that um the nuggets in their kind of recent playoff history or i guess maybe in their entire playoff history had been 15 and 3 in game 1s at home in playoff series and 10 and 8 in game 2s the idea there maybe being that um it's small sample size maybe it's just Luck in some sense, but also that maybe opponents actually adjust to the altitude. Um, I was, I think it was like Bruce Brown, one of the Nuggets, was saying that like they're often or always out of breath in their first game back in Denver um, after being away. And so, if we're then imagining that the Nuggets will have like a large advantage in Game Five <laughs> when the series goes back to Denver. I wonder if that makes it more imperative for the Heat to win Game Three and Game Four. I guess I, I'm still I'm still having a hard time imagining how this is going to end up working for the Heat. And now, like the Tyler Hero thing, kind of hangs over this series. Um, there had been speculation that he could be back for Game Two. Now um, that he will remove the bucket hat um, and and enter <laughs> enter the series in Game Three. Um, he's not a guy who has size. He's a guy who can create offense, but is somebody who gets targeted on defense. And it's just, it, it'll be really interesting. I, I mean, I certainly have faith in like Spolstra and the heat coaching staff to kind of figure out how to deploy him. But it's just, it, it's an unusual situation where it doesn't seem like he provides actually what they need. Um, bizarrely, like you would think that they would just need more offense, given the pedigree of these players. But I just wonder what will happen when he takes the court.
0: Yeah, I think you'll, you'll probably see, you know, again, Spolster's a great coach. I think you'll probably see them, you know, experimenting with putting Tyler Hero in. But I also think that, yeah, there's a big risk to sort of throwing him, especially because of his tendency to get picked on, um, defensively. And D- Denver is absolutely a team that Denver's really, really good, uh, offensively. And they're going to be really, they're going to hunt him. And, you know, you already have someone who's playing a lot of minutes in Duncan Robinson who can get hunted. Like it's, I think that that's going to be, it's going to be tricky to see what you what you end up getting from Tyler here. And I think you're absolutely right, Josh, that like, you know, I think it is kind of imperative for the heat to win games three and four. You mentioned earlier about how, you know, they've stolen home court from the nuggets uh, with winning game two. If the nuggets split the series in Denver, they've got home court back Or, or sorry, if the nuggets split the series in Miami, they've got home court back. Um, Yeah, so I think, you know, if you are Miami, your path to winning this series is probably winning both those games at home.
2: Jack Hamilton is Slate's pop critic feeling maybe retroactively better now that the Heat are the greatest team in NBA (laughs) history that the Celtics (laughs) lost to them in the Eastern Conference Finals. Jack, thanks for coming back on with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Up next, Tariq Panja of the New York Times on Saudi Arabia's efforts to take over global soccer.
1: In Madrid on Sunday, Karim Benzema said goodbye to Real Madrid fans and scored his 354th goal in 14 years for the club. Only one player has tallied more for Real, Cristiano Ronaldo, who played this season in Saudi Arabia which is where the 35-year-old French striker is also heading. That's not a coincidence. As Tariq Panja and Ahmed al-Omran reported last week in the New York Times, the Saudi government's sovereign wealth fund plans to spend more than a billion dollars a year to lure some of the world's top footballers to the Saudi Premier League. Its next target, Lionel Messi, whose contract with France's PSG just expired. Tariq Panja joins us now from Barcelona. Hey, Tariq, welcome back to the show.
3: Hey, nice to be with you guys again.
1: Football scoopmeister Fabrizio Romano reported the value of Benzema's deal to play for the Saudi team al Ittihad at more than $200 million a year for three years, up to $643 million total. There are reports that Messi is being offered more than $400 million a year. Explain for us, Tariq, the Saudi government's plan and its goals here.
3: Yeah, I mean, the numbers are astronomical and after after a while they kind of just merge into one uber number don't they is it 500 is it 400 is 600 it's just a lot of millions that that saudi arabia are throwing at suddenly having uh these top players in their domestic league we, we have we've seen other countries try to do something like this before with with big money offers but perhaps uh not at this scale The Saudis, under their Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, are trying to create essentially a a new idea of Saudi Arabia, what the country is, and sport and entertainment is a big part of that. And with soccer or football being the world's most popular sport, of course, they're going to be looking at that. Um, The plan is to create super teams, in Saudi Arabia, in-country, uh, with some of these top players. A lot of them, it must be said, in their 30s or, or um, even in their mid-30s and towards the tail end of their career, having um, these huge paydays and being uh, parachuted into to various top teams to create um, rivalry in the league there and, and attention. Saudi Arabia wants to have one of the world's top soccer leagues, not the top soccer league, because I think even with all that money, that, that is a bit of a tall order, but certainly the best in the region and one of the best in the world.
2: So this seems very similar to what the Saudis have done with Live Golf, trying to create a rival to the PGA Tour by paying exorbitant amounts of money to maybe not the best golfers in the world, um, but golfers who have names that are a a little bit past their prime, although we just saw Brooks Koepka win a a major championship, so they do have some legitimate talent there. Um, But Live Golf has not really created a huge amount of interest and attention in terms of people actually wanting to watch these events. Um, Is there a reason to believe that this plan with um, soccer would be different or would play out differently?
3: Well, it's, I guess, the the level of popularity of some of the personalities we're talking about. You mentioned uh, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the most followed uh, personalities, let alone sportsmen in the world when it comes to social media and other types of coverage, he's there. And we mentioned Lionel Messi Potentially joining him there again, a lot of eyeballs on people like that. But apart from, and this is the difficulty, apart from say rubbernecking uh, the initial stages, what would that be like? How weird, how strange it is. I I have my doubts whether there is a, con- you know, whether there is an audience for this. Whether there is a community of people outside of Saudi Arabia, outside of the Gulf. Perhaps even outside of Asia, who will want to watch these teams perform on a consistent basis in the league? You know, does anybody care if Al Itihad beat Al Nasser to the Saudi League Championship? Beyond the fans of those teams, or if you know um, Al Helal, the most popular team with Messi, wins the Asian Champions League? Because let's be honest, it isn't the European Champions League it isn't the Premier League, it isn't La Liga, you can't just buy your way to history and prestige when it comes to um, becoming this, this, you know, must-watch football tournament.
1: Right. So the idea here, apart from football, appears to be to legitimize Saudi Arabia, not just in sports and in soccer, but as a world destination. And the it, it clearly views football as an engine for that. I mean, the the fund has already acquired Newcastle United in the premiership, which qualified for the Champions League next year. Um, it's been a big player. Uh, other Saudi companies have been big players in Formula One. We've mentioned Live. And there are there's interest in Saudi Arabia in bidding for the 2030 World Cup and using these players. And I think using is a fair word to 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 apply here using these players to try to legitimize Saudi as a as a as a sports place as a sports destination you know the word that's been used is sports washing which also applies to covering its human rights problems uh, in the country is do you feel like this is that or is there some sort of more generous interpretation
3: for buying up these gigantic named superstars i think there is Depending on which way you see the the light and how it's refracted, there's different ways of seeing it. And I think part of legitimising Saudi Arabia as a sports destination, as a modern country, um, it's a shortcut to some of that stuff and, and it is a distraction um look we 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 we're doing all of these things that are popular in your countries we're not um you know as bad as some of you may think we are so there is an element of this and there's a history of this it's Saudi Arabia wouldn't be the first country to do this you know we're talking 6 months after the Qatar World Cup again there were there were other factors at play but one thing um is nation branding uh, and, and and this is not not just this football project but a lot of this sports project um whether it's um, in country or overseas is about presenting a new face then you 're looking at your your audience at home. Saudi Arabia has a young population um, it wants to have a sports centered population where it comes to um, uh, participation as well not only uh, as an entertainment force but to to kind of reduce they talk about reducing the the um, the obesity um, crisis that the Gulf region, more broadly, is, is suffering from through through presenting sports and athletes as healthy lifestyles. There's a bit of that, and then there is this pivot away from um, just being a, 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 an energy economy. More than ninety percent of its its revenue is derived from from selling um, oil and gas around the world. That there is there is an idea that some of this is, is obviously finite and we, we have to diversify our economy and sport and entertainment is is a part of that journey as well. But, you know, human rights groups, if you talk to them, they will tell you, yeah, sure. That they, They'll say, look at this shiny thing, look at this shiny new thing that you guys all like. Don't look at this other stuff. And there has to be an element of that as well.
2: Getting messy would obviously be... Just a huge difference, and ter- you know, it, I like to think of it as like you have athletes, and you you were talking about this a, a bit before, Tariq. Like you have like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant, who are athletes who both transcend their sport and are just amazing stars and big names internationally. Um, and then you have athletes like you know somebody like Joel Embiid, who's the MVP. But I don't think I, I don't think if Joel Embiid went to play in some foreign country, then people would be watching that instead of the NBA. He's a great player, but not necessarily somebody who moves the needle in terms of branding and and marketing. I personally would think of Karim Benzema as somebody more on that order. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But Messi and having Messi and Ronaldo, it would be like having Magic and Bird playing in some other country rather than in the NBA. There's just something about that collecting um, those two athletes that not only kind of signals a kind of seriousness of the endeavor, but just as sort of like uh, in terms of a curiosity factor. And it's almost like singers who go like sing happy birthday to dictators or something like that. There's just like a sort of like I'm collecting the greatest stars for my like, you know personal menagerie sort of aspect to it. Um, do you think that's a kind of fair characterization?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's a there's a stat you can use to, to kind of show the, the, the size of the magnitude of having a Messi in your ranks and not having a Messi. Paris Saint Germain, the the club that Messi will leave or has you know at the end of the season. I think he's played his last game there, the season is finished. Um lost one and a half million Instagram followers. Now the season's over, and those are the Messi followers. That that you could <laughs> that, that is a big number. So you have that and the other funny thing here, in, in in what you referenced there, these players already are available to wish you happy birthday for a fee. <laughs> I, I've I've seen this in in the Gulf, whether it's a um, a, a senior royal or a, or a sports minister. I, I've seen a birthday message from from Messi to a, a guy called Turkey Al-Sheikh, who I believe is is in charge of Saudi Arabia's. Um, entertainment scene, for example, he was the Minister for sport briefly um, when this big Saudi sports project started and again mm. you wouldn 't have thought messi and Mohammed, um, turkey al sheikh excuse me would be would have come across each other these are These are kind of commercial relationships, and there is value to to, to even saying happy birthday to someone. Um, Just going back to the the, the PIF, the Public Investment Fund as well, that you mentioned uh, owns Newcastle in the Premier League. Um, And and subsequent to us in The New York Times publishing our story on on these plans, it has been announced that the the PIF, the the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia, is going to be the majority owner, the 75 percent owner of the four top. Clubs in Saudi Arabia. So that's um, Al Nasser, the team that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo plays for, Al Tahad, the champions, um, Al Halal, um, the biggest team in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And I'll tell you what, I have forgotten the name of the fourth team, and that tells you how far Saudi Arabia has to go. I don't know uh offhand who uh, the name of this fourth team because it slipped my mind and again that might be instructive of the journey saudi arabia is going on with this league because uh you know if you ask me in six months i probably will have that name at the tip of my tongue and the plan is to to parcel these top players into each of these teams and and having them compete against each other now how organic is that And how much will these players actually bother to really put in the blood, sweat and toil we've seen them thus far in their careers will also go a long way to to telling us um, whether this is a serious uh, competitive league or whether it is just a place where where people are are going for a final payday? It seems like
1: the latter, if we're going to judge by Ronaldo's first year there, I don't get the sense that... A lot of people were following the results of the Saudi Premier League uh, because Ronaldo was playing there this year. That could change with a Messi um, and sort of the second tier of potential stars, aging stars um, who go there. But it seems like a pipe dream to imagine that that like fans around the world are going to care who wins the eight-team Saudi Premier League. Um as opposed to just following, you know, Ronaldo's and Messi's Instagram feeds, which they're going to do already. So should we sh- be shifting the focus onto them and ask why they would want to do this? They're already, you know, rich beyond anyone's imagination. The lure of of several hundred million dollars a year, obviously, is a strong one. And I guess with someone like Messi, when your choice is, you know, go to Barca maybe again, go to Saudi for $400 million a year or go to Miami? Um, those are very different considerations for your final club.
3: Yeah, to be honest, there is only one consideration that makes them go to, to that destination. They don't care really, you know, about growing football in Saudi Arabia. At least I haven't heard any of them talking about that in the past, about their their desire to end their careers in Saudi Arabia. Um it is all about money, and and the the, the riches on offer are are, are spectacular. It, it is, um, in a way, if you were looking at the career arc of Lionel Messi, if he was to end up there, a lot of people will see it as a you know a bit of a disappointing finale for for such a wonderful career. Messi, of course, is this um, sprite of a soccer player perhaps the best who's ever played the game he is Argentinian let's not forget he won the world cup with Argentina at the, the I think it was the fifth attempt um and so you know sent, sent millions of people we won't forget those images uh in the streets of Buenos Aires and other provincial towns in, in Argentina to celebrate felt like for months they, they might still be celebrating now um but the one place he hasn't played any club football is in Argentina. He's a huge fan, of, fan of Newell's Old Boys. He was in their in their youth ranks um, up until the age of twelve, and he had this this issue, um, health issue that um, uh, affected his growth, and he needed this medical treatment. He ends up in Barcelona where he, where he gets where he gets um, these 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 um, hormones that that he needed. He develops into a superstar at, at Barcelona one a player like we've never seen before um and then takes the the world by storm but wouldn't it have been a great um story an end a denouement to to what a wonderful career if he if he ended up at Neil's old boys cuz you said and it's clear he's already a very rich man but i guess you know we we we're, we're not to see something like that that type of romance in soccer perhaps is 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 dead, and is maybe a bit of a pipe dream to think that you know Messi finishes in in Newell's Old Boys, and Cristiano Ronaldo will have a last season in at Sporting Lisbon, uh, Sporting Club de Portugal, I think they like to be called. Um, no, um, we we're, we're, we're all going to Saudi Arabia because they're, they're paying the biggest checks.
1: Tariq Panja covers soccer for the new york times out of london tariq thank you so much for coming back on the show with us nice to be with you up next zach buchanan of the athletic on the san diego chicken On Friday, June 29th, 1979, more than 40,000 fans packed Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, but they didn't come for the game. Half as many would show up the next day. They came to watch the rebirth of the San Diego Chicken, whose proprietor, Ted Gianulis had been sued for the rights to his costume by the local radio station that had created it five years earlier. Encased inside a giant
3: 10-foot egg, a top an armored truck, complete with California
2: Highway Patrol motorcycle escort. It was everything it was cracked up to be. The chicken was about to begin a new era, and this was a defining moment. He was about to become a national bird, and the standing ovation that would follow would be as long and loud as any sports legend has ever received.
1: All right, full disclosure, that was from a 36-minute compilation of San Diego chicken highlights produced by the San Diego chicken Padres players helped unload that white egg and placed it near third base. As the theme from 2001, a space odyssey played Gianulis rolled around the infield for 30 seconds before kicking through the paper mache egg paraded around for a minute in his new outfit to a standing ovation and was carried off by infielder, Kurt Bavacqua and pitcher John Diacuisto, Joaquin Andujar scattered seven hits and the Astros beat the Padres and Gaylord Perry four to one. The Chicken turns 50 next year, and Ted Giannoulis turns 70 this summer and is considering retirement for both himself and the character. Zach Buchanan of The Athletic has written an excellent profile of both of them. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me. as a child of the 1970s, I grew up when the chicken achieved his early national prominence. He wasn't the first mascot, though. Looking at you, Mr. Met, what made the San Diego chicken so revolutionary? Walk us through his
4: provenance. Well, I think as I, I wrote in the story, there were a few teams that had costume characters, but they didn't really do anything interesting with them. And what made the chicken so... Uh, revolutionary and, and influential was the kind of the hijinks he would get up to you know he, he was the first one to really uh, kind of take the act that Max Patkin and Al Schacht were doing um, in their own skin and kind of turn it into a, a like a real life cartoon character as Ted Ted kind of terms it for himself uh, and uh, you know th- there weren't just weren't people going on the field messing with opposing players uh, at least among the mascots and 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 stuff the way that he was doing and pulling gags on the umpires. That that was all new, especially on the Major League stage. And Ted was the first to do that and kinda of to prove that um that a costume character could be just as much of a draw for people to come to the game as the game itself.
2: I wonder how important it was, Zach, that the Padres were bad um during those years and did not do anything on the field to distract from what Ted and the Chicken were doing, that the field and the games were kind of a, a stage with very limited distraction from the on-field talent or lack thereof.
4: Yeah, I think it's that environment is a big part of it. Um, I think the Padres hadn't had a winning season yet in their history at that point. I think it would be several more years until they put one together. Uh, they had lost, when Ted first showed up in 1974, they had lost 102 games the, the year before and they were gonna lose 102 again. And uh, so the Padres, I think they were just desperate for anything that would bring people into the park. And there's, there's certain things certainly weren't going well enough that, that they could get all serious and, you know, treat it like it was super important as, as teams tend to do when they're in the midst of a pennant race or something. So I think when Ted showed up and initially he was just in the in the concourse vamping around. And uh, after seeing how successful that was and how much people loved the chicken, the pirate uh, the Padres actually invited him onto the field where you know, some of his more memorable bits happen when he's on the field. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a big part of it. You know, them being an expansion team and and struggling gave, gave them kind of the emotional room to let something stupid like that happen. And being a not incredibly sophisticated
1: business yet, the Padres didn't attempt to buy the rights to the chick, license the chicken mascot, hire Ted as a employee. So he was still with this radio station for the first five years. But in those first five years, he took the chicken on the road beyond Padres games. He was a staple, as you report, in other San Diego at other San Diego sports games. And he ended up on the circuit, right? Going to minor league games, um, going to other major league games, going to basketball games by the time um, by 1979 when the, the the incident occurred that I that I talked about in the in the intro he had already met like President Carter and President Ford and Ted Turner had offered to trade for the chicken so this guy was a national celebrity when this little tiny radio station realized that we
4: better do something about this exactly and I, I think what what set off that lawsuit is the radio station part, part of it was Ted Turner trying to hire the chicken away. Uh, Ted Gianulis got a big raise out of that. Uh, I think he said he was the second highest paid employee at the radio station after that. But also, Ted you know, was pretty cavalier about just going and performing wherever he wanted. And the, the radio station claimed that he had performed as the KGB chicken for different radio stations in California, not in San Diego, but I think up in the Bay Area maybe. And that led them to feel like they okay they really want to yank his chain and they they fired him uh, they sued for the rights to the costume it turned out that Ted had paid himself for the copyright to that particular chicken costume. And so that became the subject of that big court battle. And eventually the costume that that, that comprises the San Diego chicken now is completely different. It's not the, the costume that Ted bought the copyright to or that he was wearing as the KGB chicken. But uh, this big, silly court battle ensued basically over the question of who owns the KGB chicken, but also can Ted Gianulis perform as a chicken, KGB or not, anywhere in San Diego County. Um, and so it took like a year and a half to resolve. And it, it's, I mean, I think it should be made into like a, a movie or something or a comedy series because it's just just so ridiculous.
2: Uh, KGB being the call letters for the radio station, not the Soviet <laughs> police agency. But um, there's footage that you can find online of Ted um, in court or being interviewed around that time wearing a paper bag over his head um, and, because he didn't, want uh, people to see his face and the lead of your story Zach is about um, him kind of trying to get ready or do an interview with ESPN more recently doing it in full chicken regalia by a pool with like bad Wi-Fi and like being sad because they're like not actually coming to him during the during the game as his Wi-Fi is is glitching out but this this idea that Ted, is Ted and the chicken is the chicken and he's not gonna, you know, be seen in the chicken costume with the the head of the chicken off, like the, the those things need to be separated.
1: No, he could probably survive with the chicken head yeah, off. It's so. true, it's yeah. true. Yeah.
2: In your conversations with him, did you get a sense of whether this this is shtick? I mean, obviously there's some there must be some shtick element to it, or or how much of it was like him taking this idea incredibly seriously that the chicken is this, like, <laughs> entity that we cannot... The, the <laughs> mystery behind it must remain and all of that and yada yada and so forth.
4: I, I think he takes it somewhat seriously. Ted is not so fastidious about hiding his face that, like, when, when it's not a, in a performance context that like he hides it so you know he doesn't go to the movies with a paper bag exactly even even as the chicken you know in the when he would barnstorm the minor leagues he would change in the in the clubhouse with the players so a lot of players who have been at a chicken game in the minor leagues have seen Ted Giannullis's face a lot of people just outside of the that performance context know what he looks like um but he does care about in, in terms of you know, the public at large, wanting to to not have him, his face be a part of it. He doesn't want people to know what he looks like. And in fact, I think there's one published photo of him that I found and I dug through 50 years of clips. Um, and it involved a lawsuit filed against him in Iowa, and uh, a news photographer caught him in, in the front seat of his car. And it's uh, it's from 40 years ago. And I just like let Ted know that I had found this photo, just as like an idle curiosity. And he was concerned that I was going to run it. And I said, No, no, don't worry. I'm not going to like you know blow up your spot like that. But he does take it seriously to that extent. But it's not like. If you saw him, you know, at the movies or something, or if you were changing in the clubhouse with him, he'd be shielding his face from you. He's not, he doesn't care that much. He's a little more practical than that.
1: I can kind of understand it, Zach. I mean, in the history of mascottery, there really only are two mascots that you can identify with the human being who created them. One is Ted and the other would be Dave Raymond, the Philly fanatic who was inspired by Ted.
4: Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of mascots, you know, it's become the culture that, um, you know, you don't let people know that you're the mascot or something or the, you know, you know, you, you know, teams aren't listing uh, the name of the guy inside their mascot on their team website or something. Um, Ted doesn't take it that seriously. You know, he, he talks through the chicken, you know, if you were, at a chicken game, he would talk to you. Most mascots don't do that because they don't want to have like a human voice coming out of this creature. He will sign at request autographs, Ted Gianulis. You know, he prefers to sign as the chicken, but he will use his own name. You know, it's, and and I also think there's a part of him that wants the credit. Um, He doesn't want it so much that he's, he wants to upstage the chicken, but you know, he's fought in in court uh, multiple times, uh, for the kind of the credit and the ownership of the chicken, and I, I think he he feels a fierce independence about maintaining that.
2: He is uh, the Kurt Flood of mascots. He maintained his independence and free agency from the team and was able to hold on to this for himself. But as opposed to the actual Kurt Flood of baseball players, this was not a thing that was ever replicated. Like there's not there was not then a trend. Of independent mascots. Mascots are associated with teams, they're owned by teams. Um, and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to be any different than that. Um, do I have that right? And is um, Ted and, and the chicken kind of one in one in that sense that this did not set a trend? And maybe it actually did the opposite. It kind of clued these franchises into the fact that they needed to get this stuff on lock.
4: I think that's right. I mean, you do have things like the the superstars or certain barnstorming acts that you see in, in minor league parks or at halftime of NBA games and stuff. But uh, I do think it's a case where, uh, you know, the, the Phillies saw what Ted was doing. And, you know, it, it's the case of someone having an innovative new idea. And then, of course, corporate America catches on and says, how can we make money off of this? How can we do this for ourselves? And, you know, the fanatic is directly inspired by the chicken, but they didn't want it to be the chicken. You know, the the, the chicken could be a little irreverent and racy at times. Uh, he had a bit of a PG-13 flavor to him and the fanatic does not, you know. And so I think that the teams, the Phillies specifically saw what he was doing and then decided, let's do this for ourselves, but our way in a way that we can control. Because obviously, it's, as Ted was in and out of court over the course of his career, you know, He's a, uh, he's a bit of a, a wild card a little bit and, and the acts that he was performed and he likes being his own boss. But that, that means that, you know, he gets to make his own mistakes or push the boundaries on things. And, you know, teams don't like wild cards like that. They want to, to have something predictable and, and family friendly.
1: Yeah. You cataloged some of the chickens legal run-ins in your excellent story. He was sued by Barney, the dinosaur once um, on a more serious note. You mentioned he had these sticks and one of the sticks that wound up in litigation um, was one of his staples, where he would sidle up to a fan or a ball girl or a team dancer and slide over and put his arm around him and then wrestle the woman to the ground and pretend to basically, you know, what we would say, assault her. Um, he was sued by that in 1991 by a dancer for the Chicago Bulls dance team, the Lovables, and he uh, was ordered to pay more than three hundred thousand dollars in damages. You asked him about this, and he said, "Yeah, tastes change, and that's true." Um, does he? But he says he also has no regrets about how he tried to push the limits of his comedy.
4: No, I, I think he still thinks that those bits were funny, and certainly when he did them, people laughed. And if you're looking at the, you know, the first time that he did this that people really took notice was uh, at when he faced off against the fanatic in 1978, and he he kind of jumped on Mary Sue Styles, who was one of the celebrity ball girls for the Phillies. And everybody laughed and it got written about at the time as this hilarious thing the chicken did. Um, But, you know, certainly the lens we look through now kind of makes it a little bit cringy. But this was the era of Animal House and Porkies and Caddyshack where all the humor was very much in that vein, you know, it's, you know, it's...
2: Yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of, like, watching 16 Candles. Yeah,
4: I right? it, it mean, it's, it's not that far removed in, in from John Belushi, you know, climbing up a ladder to, to peek on sorority girls in their rooms in Animal House. You know, it's, it's kind of of the same ilk. Um, and, and so... At 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 the time, it was very mainstream. Certainly, right now it is not, and yeah, you couldn't. He's right; you couldn't pull all that off today. And I think it's left an open question in the story. Kind of, it's the eye of the beholder. I think most of us would say uh, you shouldn't be able to pull that off today. I I think some of the older generation of comedy, as we sometimes hear about people uh, complaining about uh, social mores these days, that uh, you know, some some would think. I think Ted would maybe think that he wishes he could still do that
2: bit. Um, there's a kind of melancholy to the story. Um, you know, not just the lead where he's like desperate to get on ESPN for a, an inning and they just don't show him at all. But it's also like, he needs hip surgery. He never had children because, which seems like something he maybe regrets because he was just on the road all the time. Um, and it feels a little bit kind of silly or strange to be thinking about the San Diego chicken as a tragic figure. Um, but there was, a, and it's not just like subtext, it seems like clear as you're writing the story that you wanted readers to kind of be thinking about these things, about like who this man was, what the cost was of what he'd done, and like whether, uh, you know, looking back on on all of it, like how... He feels about it and how we should feel about it. I'm just curious, Zach, kind of what conclusions you came to and whether you felt that after spending time with him and doing all the research you did, if there was something kind of sad about this story.
4: I, I think a little bit. I, I don't think Ted is uh, kind of roiled from within about the choices he made. Uh, you know, I asked both him and his wife, uh, you know, did, did they. Did they go into the relationship kind of saying, this is what's going to be, we're going to really pursue the chicken thing. You know, he was doing 250 road dates a year for a lot of the 80s and some of the 90s. Uh, And they, they both said like, no, we just kind of looked up and realized that this was this had been our life. Um, I I think Ted does regret not having children, but I don't think it's like a searing regret. It's kind of like, you know, I mean, I kind of, you know, it would have been nice to be a father. I think he also recognizes that if he the lifestyle that he led, he wouldn't have been a very attentive father. Um, I do think that over the last 10 or 15 years, he has really enjoyed slowing down and walking around a ballpark when he's not in costume and kind of actually sitting and watching a baseball game, which he's never really been able to do before, going to concerts. You know, the chicken was a big thing at concerts in the 70s and 80s. And he was always performing. He never got to to watch one. And I'm I can, I'm only 35. I can kind of identify with that a little bit. I can't think of the last time I went to a baseball game for fun. I'm always going for work. Uh, and so I, I do think he has enjoyed recently slowing down Uh, taking his time, doing a few appearances a year, not feeling like he has to keep up the hustle and really just kind of taking in all the life that he had kind of, he'd missed while he'd been performing.
1: The other thing that I found kind of melancholy about the piece is that, you know, the chicken faded out late nineties, early two thousands as a sort of sports and social attention getter. And part of the reason, as you identify it in your story, Zach, is that the majors just became more serious and more corporate, and players and managers and umpires didn't have time or patience or interest in participating in the kind of shtick that made the majors feel more like
4: the
2: minors. But don't you think that part of it is also that um, every team got its own chicken?
4: I think to a certain extent, but, the, you know, we just don't see the kind of stuff that the chicken used to do, even that the fanatic used to do back in the day. You know, the chicken used to take the ball and give it to the new pitcher in a game. Like That just does not happen at all. It'd be verboten.
2: Toweling off a man's bald head. Yes. What, is, what has become of that that story tradition? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm trying
1: to imagine, you know... Aaron Judge and the Yankees helping a gigantic egg with a dude inside off of an armored car in the infield and then carrying the mascot off the field after he does his shtick. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Everyone's going to freak out that somebody would tear an ACL.
2: I feel like the A's, Zach, with how bad they are, everything that's not done in all of baseball, they should just concentrate it in Oakland for this year. Just like Lots of lots of bald men getting their, uh, you know, heads toweled off, you know, the, all, all of that stuff. Bring it back.
4: Yeah, they should just lean into it and get a costume possum. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I do think that the game is just more stage managed now. Uh, I think there's a rule that limits only two on-field appearances for every team mascot uh, in a game. Oh, really? And certainly with the, the pace of play rules now, <laughs> it'd be really hard to do any of that stuff. The game's just moving at a faster clip. I'd argue for, for the betterment of the game. But uh, it, the game's just not as shaggy as it used to be. And also, Ted uh, was so fiercely independent and so insistent that he not be attached to any corporate entity or any team. Uh, and he certainly made a lot of money off that independence. But now, you know, the fanatic is still a thing because the fanatic has this corporate backing behind it. Uh, and the chicken could only go so far as Ted could carry it. And when Ted started slowing down, the chicken faded from the scene a little bit. It's pretty rare that we've seen the chicken over the last 10 or 15 years. Some of that's by design, but I, I know Ted also can envision kind of a, a comeback of the 80s when he was on the baseball bunch and there were the chicken was everywhere and the chicken's in cartoons and this, that, and the other. And when he thinks about kind of you know, passing on the character. He doesn't think about passing it on to a person, but maybe to a corporate entity that can really take it somewhere. But I, I think it's a big question of whether the chicken has enough uh, kind of cultural uh, cachet right now to, to make that kind of a comeback.
1: We've broken the record for the most times we've said chicken during a segment on this show. <laughs> Very proud of that. Uh, Zach Buchanan writes for The Athletic. Covers baseball. He's really good. And we'll post a link to his story about Ted Giannullis and the San Diego chicken. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: And now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. On Sunday, on a golf course in Jersey City, New Jersey, Rose Zhang became the first woman to win her first start as a professional in 72 years. Thanks to a ridiculous amateur career and her off-the-charts potential, Zhang has been compared to Tiger Woods. She won the U.S. Women's Amateur in 2020, won the NCAA Division I Championship in 2022, and again two weeks ago, the first time a woman's golfer has won the NCAAs twice. Like Woods did before her, she's a Attending Stanford. When she won in jersey on Sunday, teammates, family members, and friends rushed to the green carrying roses. But what about the first woman to win her first start as a pro? That was Beverly Hansen, who in 1951 beat Babe. Zaharias to take the Eastern Open. Hansen didn't play high school golf in her hometown of Fargo, North Dakota. She got a journalism degree from the state university and was making 50 cents an hour for a local paper in Fargo. Journalism, always the great payer. And eventually decided she could do better playing golf. She won the 1950 US Women's Amateur and was handed the trophy by Bobby Jones. That same year, 13 women golfers formed the LPGA Tour Hansen won one of its first events as an amateur and turned pro at 26, won that pro debut at Woodland Golf Club in Newton, Massachusetts, and went on to win 15 more LPGA events, including the first LPGA championship in 1955 and two more majors. In 1958, she posted the lowest scoring average on the tour and was its leading money winner, $12,639 total. Hansen retired from the tour in 1961 and was the women's golf instructor at a club in Indian Wells, California for 35 years. At her death in 2014, Hansen was labeled the forgotten pioneer of women's golf. In an obituary, Doug Ferguson of the AP noted that when Sports Illustrated published a list of the top 50 athletes in each state, the only golfer from North Dakota was some kid who won the U.S. Junior Amateur a few years earlier. The LPGA Tour didn't post anything on its website about Hansen's death for several weeks. Ferguson wrote, Hansen is finally getting some due in addition to getting mentioned in every story about Ro Zhang over the weekend. In March, she was elected to the World Golf Hall of Fame. She will be inducted along with Tom Weisskopf, Patty Harrington, and the seven founding members of the LPGA Tour who aren't already in
2: the hall next year. Josh, what's your Beverly Hansen? On Saturday in Los Angeles, the Yankees' Aaron Judge hit his 19th home run of the season in a 6-3 win, over the Dodgers, but what got the most headlines was a catch he made up against the fence and the bottom of the eighth, or to be more accurate about it, through the fence as Judge, who is listed at six seven and 282 pounds, smacked into the wall face first to snag a fly hit by J.D. Martinez, managed to push through part of the wall, losing his balance as he spilled into the bullpen, before gathering himself and pegging the ball back into the infield. I'll confess, I was a little bit underwhelmed. Judge didn't exactly break the wall or the fence or whatever you want to call it. It's more like he unlatched it like a poorly fastened backyard fence. To make an analogy, if Daryl Dawkins and Jerome Lane shattered backboards, this was kind of like bending the rim. Or if Kool-Aid Man broke through a brick wall, then Aaron Judge kind of broke through a Lego wall. But there was a dude back on May 27th, 1991, who was legitimately the baseball Kool-Aid man. Let's take a listen. Here's the pitch. It's a shot to deep right center. It's going, going. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> That's unbelievable. The audio makes it sound like he exploded.
2: <laughs> that thudding sound you heard about five seconds into the clip was not Rodney McRae of the AAA Vancouver Canadians exploding. It was Rodney McRae of the AAA Vancouver Canadians propelling himself through a wooden flavor pack advertisement. That's Flavour Pack, the brand that would become the quality standard for frozen vegetables and fruits. Kenny Saylor says it was okay. But I digress. Uh, Rodney McRae, full sprint, running through the wall and holding on to the ball. We often cite the Society for American Baseball Research Bio Project when we do these baseball-related afterballs. I will do so again here. Mark Simon of the Sabre Bio Project has a great article on Rodney McRae, whose nickname, you might have guessed, is Crash. He was raised by his father, James, who was a theater actor who allegedly lost the role of George Jefferson to Sherman Hemsley. When he was not acting, James McRae was running a summer baseball team that included a pretty amazing collection of black players from Southern California, Eric Davis, Daryl Strawberry, and his own son. Rodney McRae played baseball at Santa Monica College and West Los Angeles College, once breaking his hand when he got hit by a pitch from future bird killer Randy Johnson. He then bounced around the minors, or maybe it'd be more accurate to say he did not bounce around because he was in single A ball for six seasons. McRae was not a very good hitter. He was fast, and he played great defense in the outfield. Those are the skills that finally took him to the majors in 1990. He stole six bases in 32 games for the White Sox without recording a single hit. The next season, the season of the crash. He's back in AAA. On May 27th, he was playing right field when Chip Hale hit a deep fly ball, and not hearing any sort of warning from his center fielder, he just kept on running right through that Flavar Pack sign. Knock on wood, it didn't hurt, McRae told Jason Stark at the time. He also said this to writer Gordon Eads. I was more upset because I landed on a tarp of water. My whole backside was soaking wet. It was not a comfortable feeling. What happened next is actually kind of similar to the Randy Johnson bird-killing incident. The catch did not get a huge amount of coverage at first, but it turned out that a single camera person, Gary Beck of KOIN-TV, was shooting the game. And then the video began circulating everywhere. The best damn sports show named it the number one devastating hit of all time. McRae says that he let it all get to his head. After that, I lost my focus doing interviews at every ballpark. I think he's being a little bit too hard on himself. You ran through a freaking wall, man. The next year, he got his final, his third and final major league hit for the Mets. The Mets manager that year was Jeff Torborg, who, according to McRae, called him McAdoo. When his playing days were done, Rodney Crash McRae became a coach and base running instructor. He also started coaching a travel ball team in Houston. And his son Grant is now a minor league outfielder in the San Francisco Giants organization. This year so far, in high A ball, he's got 21 steals and, to my knowledge, no walls busted through. Crash! So in Bull Durham, Crash
1: Davis was the Kevin Costner character. He was not named because he crashed through a role, though. There was an original Crash Davis who played baseball, collided with a teammate when he was 14 years old and was nicknamed Crash. That is not as good a Crash nickname as Rodney McCrae's Crash. I think you have to earn your Crash, and Rodney McRae definitely did that.
2: Um, did you guys, uh, producer Kevin Bendis and co-host Stefan Fatsas, enjoy my just extremely demeaning remarks towards Aaron Judge because if so they were they were written just for you for your for your pleasure you know I agree I mean there have been cases of other outfielders sort of
1: running into the wall and the door coming undone
2: it was a to, it was a latching like- it was a latching issue it was a, a latching, latching issue, issue. I'm convinced. I don't agree. I don't know. The
0: McCray crash, you, you, it looks like he goes through some cardboard. <laughs> versus now the fencing is much, much stronger. You couldn't you couldn't crash through it these days, I think.
2: Kevin Bendis, demeaning, demeaning AAA of ballpark construction. Kevin's going to be telling his grandchildren that Aaron Judge ran through a literal brick wall. <laughs> That's right. That is our show for today our producer, and Aaron Judge-Apologist is Kevin Bendis. To so listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.